Hello and welcome to Start What Your Podcast, where we explore startup universe, innovation, startups and investors. Today my guest is Rob Nias, partner at Hoxton Ventures. Rob has a computer scientist degree and he has been part of Google AdSense team as a product manager. At Hoxton Ventures, he is part of an investment team and also hacking together data tools for better decision making. In our conversation, we talk about changing investment landscape, how that is affected by availability of data, what is a ROB score, and we geek out on some technical aspects about LLMs, data scraping, and data analysis. Now, over to our conversation. So, Rob, welcome to Start With Your Podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. So, tell about... Hoxton, and uh, what are you doing at Hoxton? So everything from making investments to fixing the toilets to everything in between. So it's a uh, we're a very flat partnership. So we tend to get our hands quite dirty doing everything from investments to managing portfolio to fundraising. And then I'm in the process of spinning out a new vehicle that's dedicated more specifically to, to tech bio right now or areas where we're seeing computation being applied to the life sciences or biology side of the world. So lots going on, lots of fun. Mm. So you have an interesting background. You are uh, not a career VC. You come from, uh, you have been hands-on into uh, companies. Yep. yep. No, I mean, probably more common in California, but I came from an operating background. So computer scientist by trade, um, moved to Silicon Valley the the day after I graduated college, um, went to work for Intel, studied at Stanford, and then joined Google back when it was still private and tiny relatively. So I was a product manager there. So working on the new AdSense product when we launched AdSense. So if you've ever seen the ads by Google all over the web, that was what I worked on in my products. I managed all the front ends for three or four years. I uh, was working on a lot of AdWords bidding and kind of things behind the scenes with how we ran the AdWords auction, which is very transparent or opaque to in, to advertisers, but very complex behind the scenes with how we determine what ads to show. Um, so fun experience. And then- And how you ended up with uh, Hoxton Ventures? There's a, a, long, a long journey. So I came to London with Google because I wanted some more international experience and it was a good time the company got bigger when I joined it only had one office and so came over thinking I'd stay for a year or two then go back to California liked London but Google wasn't as exciting over here because there weren't as many engineering projects so fell into venture at Fidelity Ventures which is now called Eight Roads um, learned the ropes there and then saw that there weren't many funds in Europe that had real operating partners you know in California there were funds like Floodgate and Homebrew and Felicious you know pick a number and they all have like an ex product manager from Google or Facebook or Uber here. Most of the firms tended to be tended to be more run by bankers or financiers or people that never really gotten their hands dirty. And, you know, if you're looking at software, it's nice to be able to spin up a Docker image and try the founder software out. Or, you know, if it's a dev tool, you know, using it in VS code on my computer, being able to do the basics is, is quite, you know, quite unique. And I think increasingly, you know, founders want to take money from those who speak their language so that was kind of the predicate. And I met my business partner who was at Excel at the time, and we saw he had a similar background. And we saw that, you know, we thought it was a, a gap in the market that compared to California, there weren't many funds that were disciplined and had that kind of background. So decided to raise a new fund in Europe originally about 13 years ago, which was a, a very difficult proposition. So it took us quite a while to get off the ground, but we- um, It was a different uh, kind of world. <laughs> 
much, much different world. And most folks did not believe you could make money in Europe or you could make money in tech in Europe. So the Americans didn't believe in Europe. The Europeans didn't believe in tech. So it was a, a tough sell. We eventually found some some people that believed in us, you know, got some pity checks from friends in California that said, look, I don't know why you're in Europe, but I like you. Here's a check. I, I hope I get some money back at the end of the day. And it's, it's worked out very well. Our, our, top, our first fund has been a top you know, decile fund. We had early investments in Dark Trace, Deliveroo, Babylon Health, all three went public. Um, and now we're in our third fund. So we've raised you know over $300 million in total over the three funds and SPVs, um, done, gosh, probably 60 some odd deals, myself and my partner. We've added some new people. So we've added two new folks over the past couple of years. And then I'm, I'm working with a partner for the deep for the new fund, HTree. Um, she'll be my co-founder in that. And she has a really strong biology background. So um, yeah, that was kind of the origin. And then also in terms of the data science, that was also sort of the origin of the data science that what we found that being at Google, you know, you have access to so much information. And when I left Google, one of the things I really missed was for AdSense, we had an amazing view from the Google toolbar data of traffic patterns all over the web. And we could go out and say, you know, what's a company that's on the rise in Latvia? And if you segment the traffic by geography and you can you know, do an analysis and see, okay, great, you know, this company or this site is going from, you know, a thousand page views a day to 2000 page views a day to 5,000 page views a day. And, you know, we would use that for AdSense to look at which sites we should target or who we should look at. Um, but once you have that data, it really spoils you. So it started out at Fidelity thinking about how can I do something kind of similar? And at the time, you know, you know, the best you could get was really Alexa data. So, you know, V1 was me trying to pull Alexa data. And, you know, remember, this is before app stores even, um, just to try and find, you know, what's on the rise and especially things that aren't in my city or different demographic. You know, what am I, what am I missing or what should I be seeing? Because it's always... You know, the case where you hear about something, oh, this is huge in France right now. And if you're in the UK, you may not know about it. So you know, as mm. a venture fund in California, you tend to hear everything that's on the ground in California. But if you're in London, you know, you don't hear as much. And then if you're on the continent, you know your local market. But I figured that was an interesting source of, of new material, which kind of led me down this path over time. Mm. So you, you got your data gene at Google and it never left you. <laughs> Yeah, it, it really spoils you. I mean, when you have access to so much data, and of course it's it's well protected and anonymized, but you know, you have access to so much you know, of the web, you know, whether it's at the time it was Google toolbar oriented data, now it's Chrome browsing data, you know, there's so much telemetry in the Google stuff. Mm. You, know, you have amazing views. And you know, Facebook does the same with with a v, with VPN data. You know, they have free VPNs they put out there that give you a sampling of data the same way. Apple surely has the same amount, but you know, outside the valley, nobody has the the footprint really, unless you're a, a massive app. And even then it's been increasingly tight with Android and, and iOS restrictions. So now at uh Hoxton, what what's your data operation? You don't have a dedicated data team. You are the data team. <laughs> it's yeah, it's me on the side and uh, on weekends or late at night. Um yeah, so you know, I I've built this a set of tools out over the years to basically try and identify both people and companies that are of interest. You know, again, with a taking a first principles view of if I see a company that's looks interesting, or I hear about a company that raised from an angel I like, you know, how do I keep an eye on that company? Make sure I'm tracking if they're getting some velocity or if they're hiring quality people. You know, all the factors that you kind of think about what would make a good company. So you know, subjectively, 
how do you turn that into the signals you can then process? So, you know, from my view, you know, with funds, it's very dangerous that once you see a company, you, you fall into CRM hell, that once the associate marks you as a pass, it's very hard to revive that deal. And, you know, there are companies that, you know, are flat and unexciting and then turn exciting. And, you know, there's companies that are hot and get unhot. And there's companies too that you know maybe on your radar, but if you haven't talked to their angel investor, you may not know much about them. So, you know, how do you find all kinds of public and private signals about a company, and then you know watch it on a time scale to try and understand you know when should I reach out, you know who should I reach out to, um, and it goes down to you know the components whether it's public signals around you know GitHub stars at the very basic to people movement. So if you're a company of, you know, five people and you hire, you know, two folks from MIT into London, like that's an interesting signal or two people leave DeepMind to join your company. That's a good signal. Or you know, even connectivity among founders that this founder is connecting to, you know, some investors all of a sudden. So, you know, there's a lot of time sensitive data to try and find the right interception points. And then again, overlaying other tools as well around, you know, knowing when a company may have raised their last round. So if they raised their pre-seed six months ago, you know, that's probably when you'd want to start engaging with them for the seed up to, you know, two years, depending on what's going on. But a lot of those kind of trying to churn how a VC would think into a tool to at least give us the surface of things that are worth surfacing and, you know, give us a priority list of what we should be looking at or what, what shouldn't we be missing. Those are a lot of signals. Are you, so you have put that all together by you your yourself? Yeah, yeah. The, lots of uh, lots of trial and error and back testing and uh, it, scrapers and bots and all these different tools. But um, yeah, I mean, over the years, I've you know created a a network of you know devices I can remote control that can help me scrape and collect data. You know, centralized. I mean, have a fairly decently architected database and data structure. And then, you know, for post-processing and both for ETL on the inbound and then post-processing, a set of you know, kind of helper tools that go through and can you know, normalize data, help to augment data or do various joins on other things. You know, it's very hard even, you know, trying to figure out, you know, which company corresponds to what. So if you, if you know a name, you know, my company name is Otter. Well, so there may be an otter.com, an otter.ai, getotter.co, you know, on LinkedIn, how do you figure out which one is that one? How do you figure out what their Twitter handle is? How do you yeah. figure out what- Entity matching. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's very non-trivial. You know, a lot of founders, you know, give themselves name collisions. And so if you look at some names, you know, there's seven of them in Crunchbase. And, and especially in Europe, a lot of founders don't always disclose their location that I think to seem more American, you know, founders put- headquarters Mountain View and they have a mailbox there. But if you look on LinkedIn, you realize, you know, of the 30 people, 30 are in Kiev or, you know, 28 are in Riga and maybe two are in London. But there's all these different, you know, obfuscations you have to work around and try and come up with the best guess around, you know, category, understanding what's out there. You know, if you get a deck, that's great. You have information about the company. Um, but sometimes you only have, you know, a landing page of a website or you yeah. have, you know, who is data on a company, maybe if it's not private. So it's hard we to had, synthesize. We had discussion with Abel uh, from Red River West about these duplicates that, well, yeah. First thing is like, yeah, domain name is going to be the, the stuff which you're going to be the identity matcher. And then they 
simply change the domain name and you're screwed. Now I, you have two companies. I, I wish it was that easy as domain name. Yeah. Founders <laughs> yeah. go through three or four different domain names. They try a .ai or a .io. And then, you know, you realize too, over time, the data decay where, you know, one of the hardest problems is, you know, when a company gets acquired or sold or shuts down, you know, then that company starts to die naturally. People take it off their LinkedIn, but there's still maybe, you know, things lingering onward, you know, the headcount might be dropping, and then someone else launches a company with a new name or buys the asset. So there's a lot of data freshness and quality issues that are quite hard to solve and to some extent require manual intervention. Sometimes you, yeah. know, you can use machine learning to do it, but also these don't lend themselves very well to machine learning or this problem because the data aren't always as fresh from when the last, you know, the last um, model was run and often it's very sparse data. So it's hard to infer, you know, if you ask, you know, chat GPT, you know, what is the website for company X that was started last year? It probably will have nothing. So it's great for, for high volume stuff, but for low volume stuff, there's no yeah. perfect solution. So it's really are you building, are you building machine learning models? I'm not doing any of the, mo the models myself. So mm. I'm using off, off the shelf models. So I have a, a 4090 uh, a, uh, graphics card in, in this in the, the rack and have a lot of the you know, different side projects I have going on there, mostly, you know, off the shelf LLMs, you know, doing some tweaking and, you know, frankly, for the cost, you know, ChatGPT is pretty fine for some of the applications I'm doing. You know, there are some things, if, if I had more time, I'd like to do a lot more, you know, model building myself. But, you know, for, for a lot of it, the basics, use the, the OpenAI API is, is pretty darn good. So, you know, even for inbound data, like whenever we get an inbound deck, I go through and I parse out all the data from the email. I parse out the body of the email. If there's a doc send or a PDF, I go through and download the doc send, OCR it using Tesseract, and then dump all that into OpenAI and say, look, you know, give me a two paragraph summary. Tell me who the founders are. Tell me where they're located. Tell me what stage the company is. So you know, even the, the table stakes are pretty good at that. It's just hard to synthesize all the data until you've done it yourself. How, how like let's let's go back to last year December. How how the OpenAI launch changed your daily life? How you work? It was very very incremental. I think you know I would think about different pain points I had, and you know as as I had time to work on them or think about them, I would try and add this into my repertoire of tools to solve it. And you know for certain problems like finding a domain name not a good fit. And, you know, over time, maybe it's gotten marginally better. Um, but you know, I think as the APIs have gotten more robust, as the token window has been extended, there's a lot more utility now where I can, you know, take a 20 page PDF, OCR, it's, you know, bad quality OCR, but when you dump that all in, you get a pretty good response. So, you know, I think as I've, you know, with any software, you know, there's kind of six monthly bug fixes and updates where something breaks or something, you know, a dependency changes. And as I, you know, go in and refactor, it's a, it's a time to refactor, try and apply machine learning to problems. So if I see a point problem, um, and I think just in general, I mean, as a, as a coder, you know, I'm, I study computer science, but you know, it's not a full-time job. So, you know, I, I find myself using it for, you know, code snippets, you know, refactoring ideas. I think that that's the real powerful thing just for any mm. engineer. Yep. You know, it's such, it's such a powerful change to say, you know, how should I solve a, you know, a promise queue in node, you know, should I use a map or should I use promise.all to, you know, wait for these to all resolve. And there's lots of, you know, very useful insights that, you know, to me shave 
you know, minutes or hours sometimes. And I have friends that are, you know, started off in Excel and are now, you know, writing an Express JS app with, you know, OpenAI doing most of the work. And yeah, you know, if you can if you can outline as a product manager what you want or wireframe, that gets you most of the way there. So I think that's kind of the the fun thing is that, you know, I'm able to do more powerful things with the actual machine learning tools. And then even just with the coding, it makes me more efficient. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a, quite a big uh, big change in everyday work. So at Hoxton, you so is that the whole infrastructure just for you, or you're sharing with the team? No, so I, I, I share it with the team. So we have a, a front end I wrote that gives them you know better mm. access to the data. So ideally, you know what I want to do is give them the right view. So again, kind of work, I think as a product manager, you know what would the other partners, what do I want? What do the other partners want? So, you know, I have a, a front end that gives them views of, you know, kind of a push view of, you know, here are the things that I think are interesting in the last 24 hours or seven day period that look like they're rising and you can cut it by like size of company or geography. Um, likewise, you know, you can view individual companies. So if I have a company I'm looking at, I can pull it up and it hooks into our CRM and dumps in the notes and I can see all the data about the growth to say, okay, this company looks great, you know, or has high quality people or whatever it might be. And then a lot of reporting around the raw data to try and identify, you know, people in roles, whether or not, you know, depending on the the specificity of the role, like if I want a, a bioinformatician, you know, those are quite specific and I can go through and, you know, create a report automatically in the front end. You know, I want every bioinformatician with, you know, four years plus of experience in mm. the UK or in greater Europe. So it helps the founders and I, it self-service for the founders as well. So founders like it for hiring or trying to identify people, particularly if you look at, you know, has the person changed jobs recently or have they been somewhere for two years or four years and might be gettable. Um, but I think it, it provides a better view than, you know, LinkedIn alone can do. They still will probably use LinkedIn too, but by the way, especially for deep keywords. So, by the way, do you have a name for your platform? It started out just as Rob Score because I, I synthesized <laughs> the, the number as Rob Score, the, the very, very mainly. Um, it, it, it's do a better name, I, I think. For for various presentation, I've called it the uh, the Hoxton or H Tree Internal Data Initiative. But uh, the the Rob Score is just the the synthetic metric, like the the Zillow score <laughs> in the US. That's uh, good. That's good. I, at first, it was just the internal database table name before I uh, had the idea of exposing it to the partners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's nice. Uh, so across the VC value chain, where do you use it? Like there's discovery, enrichment, and there's due diligence, closing, uh, portfolio work, exit. Yeah, I, mean, I think you know, there's a lot of places you can use it. To me, you know, as a VC, a lot of the stuff, you know, around diligence is still very bespoke where it's useful to have data, but, you know, you're still, if you're engaging with a company, you have their numbers, their primary numbers. So I think, I think of it kind of very much on the, the ingress where identifying a company or even finding a company. So knowing like where to look, you know, where to find a needle in the haystack among all the companies out there. And particularly the recall, where if I meet a company, I might talk to them 12 months ago and, they pivot and all of a sudden a year later, they're trending upwards and, you know, the founder is talking to people, but I've had, a, I've had a view of the company. So arguably I should be able to look at metrics and try and see things that are publicly exposed that might imply something is changing. So 
I see it a lot on the on the sourcing and origination side, and then on the very latter side in terms of you know helping founders with tools for their company. I think there's a lot of value there. Everything in the middle, it's useful. It ties into the CRM, but generally speaking, you know, identifying and trying to help pick companies or support the decision process, I think it's the most significant thing in a fund that you mm. know, you can get augmentation for. I think a lot of the other things are still sort of standard. You know, you have to go out and meet the founders and mm. take the meetings and you know dig in behind the scenes. And it's nice to know the background of the founders. You know, calculated or knowing that. They came from MIT or a top 20 computer science school or whatever it might be, but you know, you'll find that out in the process anyway. It sounds interesting that it's um, there's something, you have this stage between discovery and uh, due diligence, basically, or enrichment. It's following that you're basically, you have created an infrastructure which allows you to see the progress over timeline. Yeah, for for me, the the time series is the one most valuable thing. I mean, I've seen so often where, even with our portfolio companies, you know, we may send it to a Sequoia, and you know they look at it and maybe too early, and you know it's very hard. Most firms aren't set up to incentivize, especially if they have associates and principals. Once a deal is marked as pass, mm-hmm. no one's that incentivized to revise it or to revive it. So, I mean, I see this with a lot of firms that. Yeah, it's sort of CRM hell that once you happen to cross their paths, someone's like, oh, I looked at that. It was it was a pass. And everyone says, oh, that was a pass. Whereas you know, something may have massively changed. And you know, maybe if the founders gets time, they can explain the difference. But you know, I've seen it too often where quite a few deals have you know substantial revenue growth. And unless I partner to partner talk to a partner at the fund, it goes into the associate queue and, and gets lost. So to me, the that that time factor, if you look at like a UI path. You know, it turned out to be a phenomenal deal, but you know, in the first between when they raised their like pre-seed, seed, whatever it was, their first money, it was quite flat for a couple of years, and you know, it got seen by nearly everyone in London. And because it was flat, no one got excited. When they found the product market fit, it started to take off like a hockey stick, but it got yeah, it's, know, ignored. It's so interesting that VCs say that well they are interested in uh, in in founders who have this persistence and who are willing to grind and everything, but then it's like it's this as you say it's uh, you check in once and then it's pass and then it's like it's over. Why it is so? Is it lack of data or is it the there's always enough deal flow or it's just the culture? I think it's it's lack of data necessarily. It's not necessarily having a human touch that you realize, you know, VCs are for better or worse, you know, there's a lot of inbound you get every day. I mean, and we probably see 10 different deals inbound a day, if not more, each of us. So, you know, it's a high volume game where, you know, you're skimming things, you're reading the first, you know, two subject line or the subject line and the first two lines and yeah, you pattern match for better or worse, just because it's hard to do that and you respond to all the other emails and talk to founders in the portfolio. But I think it's easy to for things just to get lost. And you know, if, if a deal is good, oftentimes there's another investor who, you know, if you think about the quality of notes, you know, if another VC sends me a note, I usually will spend more time looking at what they send versus a cold email. Or, you know, sometimes people are just not clear in their emails where, you know, if my company has tripled in revenue, I put that in the subject line. I'm like, hey. Since we last met, I tripled my revenue to X hundred thousand pounds. 
yeah, it gets lost in the noise. And I, I think a lot of it's not through any bad nature, just the nature of the job is that, mm. you know, we're, I mean, I feel like an email forwarding machine some days where I have my days as forwarding connections back and forth. But yeah, you know, if I happen to be out or, you know, if I have a sick child and I'm out for the day, that whole day's worth of email is up and then I'm probably going through it twice the speed. And it happens with all partners at firms and, you know, with associates, same thing. They pattern match their own way. They may have more time to look in, but, you know, if the, if the lead is buried in a dachshund link versus in a subject line, you know, in London, especially, you know, I'm not getting data a third of the time. So I can't open the dachshund link if I'm on the tube, um, you know, little things like that, that are sort of unintended errors that compound. And sometimes you miss things entirely. Mm, yeah. It's, it's interesting how the data approach changes that you're in an interesting position because you're, you're, you're a partner and a hacker yourself. Hope to be, hope to be yeah, a bad, a bad hacker. I mean, I can't say I am uh, anywhere near the caliber of my, uh, my Google. You're friends, building internal enough. tools. You're building internal tools that we, probably good enough. Internal tools. I think I had a couple one-liners contributed to the Google mono repo back in the day, but that was uh, the, that's a career high water mark. <laughs> I think after there, it's only downhill. <laughs> Can you tell about your data stack? Yeah, so pretty pretty bog standard. I mean, I like off the shelf, and you know, machines should be cattle. So you know, generally speaking, Ansible, Docker. Um, to an extent, so Spacelift is one of my companies. So I've started doing more Kubernetes, albeit my my volume isn't probably high enough to to justify it necessarily. And then, yeah, code wise, I mean, standard Node, Dockerized. You know, everything is generally centrally deployed from GitHub. So whenever I push a change, you know, I have VS Code on the desktop using Dev containers as my Dev environment, push it out, goes to GitHub, and you know gets pushed out to all the machines as they need. And on the data, on the centralized kind of front end server, same thing, you know, React, JS, Express applications. I feel like I wanted something quite, um, quite standardized where, you know, if I need to have someone help or eventually if I hire people, uh, I don't want to have too much weird stuff. I want to be pretty, uh, pretty plain and simple. And again, it's just easier to, you know, get bootstrapped and get going. So I think that's the most of it. Then, you know, for some of the, some of the data acquisition, I mean, I love using headless Chrome. So, you know, Puppeteer or Playwright with headless Chrome is pretty Which amazing. The thing. Puppeteer or Playwright? So most of the stuff I do is in Puppeteer because it gives you a little bit better ability to do intercept requests. So if you look at like XHR mm -hmm. interception, yep. you have a little more control to do that in, in, in Puppeteer. Puppeteer for now. For eventually, Playwright will have it, and it'll be a reason to move entirely to Playwright. But for I'm now, there's still... I'm Pythonista. I'm using Playwright, but yeah, Puppeteer, I guess, is for <laughs> JavaScript people. Exactly, exactly. So I, I just happen to be, you know, more of a. I, even since since university, I mean, we were trained in you know Java and C So I've always got the the idea of semicolons at the end, and I could never get my head around the. <laughs> the the space-based formatting of python or the the tab-based <laughs> formatting things. religion so, religion I know, exactly exactly it's a, a battle for a battle for for another day but um yeah and then you know i think for um for crawling i think there've been some amazing tools that you know 
sort of came out of the the sneaker bot space for people trying to buy Nikes. But you know, whether it's avoiding Akamai or avoiding Cloudflare, there's some amazing tools where people will have you know custom Chrome web drivers. You know, inside a Docker container, you can run headless Chrome, and it looks just like a real PC. And then if you combine that with residential proxies, you know, you can crawl pretty much anything at a reasonable scale. So that's quite inexpensive. So, you know, I use VPSs from Linode and Hetzner. So it's quite, um, you know, it's automatable. Everything, you know, can be centrally controlled. You know, I have database flags for various things I want to do, but yeah, it's, um, the, the it's, it's fingerprinting. Are you doing uh, the, are you faking fingerprints? So I, fortunately, it's not come up that often. Like the most common hassles are like Cloudflare uh, captures. So you don't necessarily have to have a totally custom fingerprint. If you're doing like Nike shoe buying, you probably do need some really advanced fingerprinting. But I found that with the actually running headless Chrome inside a Docker container, you know, you can spoof enough things that it looks pretty darn good mm. that it generally passes the, thre the threshold for all but the most ridiculous sites. So given that most startups generally tend to be less less IP protective, um, I found, you know, if I get around Akamai and Cloudflare, you know, the various and particularly with like residential IPs that covers 90% yeah. of the cases I would want, but I totally get the, you know, if you're doing Ticketmaster tickets, like those are the guys that have to use the, the custom Chrome um, builds that, I mean, there's a couple of cool ones that actually do do that kind of custom. Yeah, I guess for uh, VCs, it's not as big problem because startups that usually they are not at the stage where they have to uh, fight bots. They basically, <laughs> They exactly. would love also, to someone to visit <laughs> their site. Yeah. And even then you realize that there's always you know, often workarounds of poorly implemented systems where, you know, they expose, you know, for the homepage, it has Cloudflare. But if you go through from a regular computer and look at the API calls, it's calling, you know, a third party server and handing JSON yeah. back and forth. So once you get the basic auth off, then you hit the server yeah. and get the JSON directly, which is phenomenal. So, I mean, to me, just, you know, that's your even- Low-hanging fruits. Yeah, and even, you know, with headless Chrome, you can do an HAR dump and you get, you know, the entire contents of memory, which you can then parse through. So even if it's obfuscated JavaScript, you know, odds are in the HAR, in the memory, you can find the object you want and it's probably going to be somewhat parameterized at that point. So even if the keys are obfuscated, you can probably- Look at the expected results yeah. and look at the cluster of data in that object. So, so you know, there's you, a lot of ways that. Yeah, you have dug into that stuff. I, I can hear that. That's a, <laughs> so oh, no. now you're scraping. Where are you dumping it and what uh, ETL? Yeah, so, yeah, so you know, I have a bunch of kind of lightweight ETL tools that I've just hacked together to you know, try and normalize, make sure the data are correct, and then yeah, everything goes into one master Postgres instance with you know a few million mm -hmm. rows. It's got you know, a bunch of different tables for storing different time series. So you know if I see someone's changed jobs, I can log that, or if they've changed job title, or if you know I can sequence you know their Twitter followers over time, or I can sequence their education history. So then just you know plain old SQL doing joins and you know doing mm -hmm. a yeah. an async job to go through and calculate scoring. So you know I'll look at a person and make an estimation. Okay, great. I just discovered Ernest. He's gone to you know. Stanford and Caltech and he worked at Apple. So, you know, I'll score that, you know, three points and, you know, multiply, you know, so kind of a complex polynomial yeah. for, for assessing, you know, for an unknown person, how interesting are they? And 
not perfect and would miss certain cases of someone that may be you know, excellent and totally self-taught. Um, but it's a good starting point. So you can see if a good company, enough. you know, yeah. I think like, eh, like early days of Google, you know, there were a lot of people that were at Deck or were at, you know, Park. And, you know, in those days, those would have been the key signals. And, you know, if Google was going from 20 to 30 people and you saw 10 people from Park joining, that's a pretty good signal. So, you know, it, it helps. And then likewise, you know, at the later stages too, it's useful for, for friends along the way. So I'll kind of, for other investors that are friends with us that are following investors, sometimes, you know, it may be out of our domain as a seed, but I'm seeing something really interesting at the A. I'll then drop them a note or curry mm. favor with them. So when it comes time to another deal, they'll uh, they'll look at our deal more hard. So do you see how that uh, the data approach changes the industry? I, I mean, I, we've been doing it. In, so some of my partners have been doing an analysis of all the tools out there. I think it's, you know, it's a, a holy grail in a lot of ways, but it's also very, very difficult because it's just so hard to get high quality data to make, especially for early stage VC. I would argue that if you're a series A or series B fund, there's a lot of interesting data you can get. And, and I'm very envious of like the hedge funds, like the Kotus, because they have, you know, 20 to $50 million data budgets. And, you know, if you're a hedge fund, you're buying credit card data in the US and you can see you know, at the levels they're buying and with their data processing, you know, if I'm selling a SaaS product and I'm going from 20 subscribers a month to 40 subscribers a month, that, you know, level of data will show up. And that, that's super interesting because you're not going to get revenue data anywhere else, but actual credit card data. Mm. Um, but to do that is, you know, an incredibly high expenditure that doesn't really work for any venture funds. Signalfire, same thing, you know, they spend, you know, two or three million bucks a year acquiring different data sources, which is you know, useful if you have the budget. But I think, you know, all the tools I've seen tend to rely on, you know, you can do interesting things on top of basic data, but if it's garbage in, it's garbage out. So mm-hmm. if you don't know, you know, how old the company is, or you don't know if the company actually raised money or on Crunchbase, it says they're in California, but they're really in Riga. It's hard to to get the noise out. And I don't know there's any good way of automating that versus you know, some human approach. So I think a lot of people are trying to do this and particularly for the later stage funds, I think though there will be you know, quite valuable tools. I mean, as a base case, you see it with like App Annie now where there's a lot of funds that buy App Annie data. And so, you know, they do regressions on the acceleration up the curve. So if you build an app and it gets into the top, say 200 in the UK app store, you'll get three or four phone calls from Andreessen Horowitz and Signalfire. You know, other funds may not even hear about it because they don't have access to that data. So I think it becomes an arms race where you know certain firms will have an edge or you'll be forced to buy some kind of data or buy, buy an app any subscription. But um, I think there's a lot of things. You know, If you're a B2B company, unless you have credit card data, you wouldn't really know about it. So it's a, it's a tough challenge to see how it totally transforms the early stage industry. But it's very tempting, mm. and I, I, I'm always keen on finding data sources or hearing what other folks are doing. If someone's found some other signal that's interesting, you know, companies' house data in Europe is really interesting, but the latency is so high that it's a bit useless. So, you know, I love looking at companies' house here, but it's usually, you know, at least six months in arrears from when it happens. So, it's great for looking at you know companies where I know the angel's name and they're on the board, but incomplete and you know sometimes the docs aren't complete or even then you're doing ocr and trying to guess a name where if it's you know robert smith is that robert smith the angel or robert smith someone random so it's so you're, a very tantalizing you're data of, problem you're relying on yourself when it comes to data 
Yeah, for, for for lack of a better uh, solution, I mean, I'd be I'd be very happy to buy it off the shelf if someone else had mm-hmm. you know, really high quality data, and, and I'm certain there's people that are able to analyze it far better than I am in terms of you know actually applying better machine learning to the clustering or you know to the definition of a category you know for a, a given company you know should I cluster the category into segments and try and ascertain you know is this a vertical that's interesting you know right now i'm kind of looking at things very holistically but and with my with my new fund i'll be looking at things particularly around deep tech but you know should i be scoring things more highly if they're in you know the ai space right now or next year if they're in you know synthetic biology you know there's a lot of different nuance you can kind of boil the ocean with or boil your own part of the ocean that are still low-hanging fruit so i think people will develop some tools to do those part those mm. bits better but Unfortunately, most of the tools you see are, at the end of the day, buying the same data from French Space and PitchBook and DealRoom and aren't able to really generate proprietary data very well. Yeah, it's funny. It seems that it's uh, it's it's the same cake passed along, and in the end, it's like kind of chubby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you see the same errors. Like I'll, I'll find an example and go through and try and find the same error. As some people are trying to do better ETL with you know the join. So if it mismatches between Crunchbase and PitchBook, they'll then try and disambiguate it with you know a Twitter or GitHub profile to try and figure out you know where's the location. Yeah. Or if you drill down on GitHub to see the contributor contributors, you know can you figure out where the contributors are located, which may be indicative you know for an open source project. Again, not always perfect, but you know you kind of try and add as many data points as you can until you get to a Sounds confidence interesting. level. So it's interesting that, yeah, for example, on one end, you have a signal fire EQT, the big boys buying data sets, spending millions. And then on the other end, there are a couple of players like yourself, like who are the, I would call the VC hackers, like someone who yeah. is a couple people team with the skills to hack something together. What do you see? What is the future? Where where are we going with this? Is is there is there fundamentally a change how people will find the deals or how startups will raise capital? I think it's two parts. I think you know, for founders, a lot of founders don't do a good job surfacing their own data. So you know, unless they're specifically trying to hide because they're well capitalized. You know, a lot of companies, you know, pick name collisions with existing names, pick bad URLs, you know, don't do a good job of, you know, or don't have a crunch-based profile. So I think it's a combination that when founders realize, generally speaking, you know, you want to have a good footprint in all the right places with good data. Because if, I mean, we saw this as a fund that, you know, if there's databases, people go through and say, I want to meet all the all the VC funds in London. And if you're marked as, you know, Paris, they miss you. So I think for founders, it's in their interest. And I, I tell all of our portfolio companies, look, you know, make sure your LinkedIn is good, add a crunch-based profile, you know, make sure you've gotten data submitted to deal room or whoever it might be. Um, so I, I think on one hand, and founders in California, I think tend to have a little more of a view of this because they see how it affects them. Um, Europe less so because the tools aren't as widely used. And particularly as you go further in the continent, if you've never done a startup and don't know many other startup people, you just wouldn't think of, oh, Crunchbase, I should have a profile there. Um, and then you know, likewise on the on the VC side, I think you know, some of these things will be table stakes that you know, if you're not tracking app any data or similar app data, you know, you're gonna see things fairly late. So either you're a specialist and you have to 
show your edge in some way, or mm. your team have to be able to find these deals early because if they're good, you know, if they're rising, someone reaches out and makes them an offer before they may have necessarily gone out to to raise from the market. So I think that's, you know, that'll be the state of play where, you know, some of the tools become table stakes, you know, people will be investing in their CRM, you know, the CRM space is still not great. I mean, you know, our, our CRM keys on domain name, which is better than most in terms of, you know, understanding, you know, if it's, you know, UCLA.edu, I know it's the endowment and I can pull out the people who aren't from the endowment. Yeah. But, I um, have, yeah. I have spoken with a couple of VCs. Yep. Yeah. I have spoken with a couple of VCs and uh, it seems that the CRM customer relationship management, it's, it's not the perfect tool. It's just the, the best one, which fits kind of fits the need. But VCs are not into like sales where the CRMs are usually built for sales. Yeah. That's a, that's the problem. I mean, VC is fundamentally often a sales job. And I think whether or not VCs like to say it or not, I mean, our job is selling our money, right? I mean, it sounds stupid, but our job is convincing founders why they should want our money or want to take investment from us. Hopefully they're excited about it. And, um, same thing with raising funds, you know, you're selling your story to LPs who you'd want to sell your fund to. But I think, you know, for CRM, you know, so much of life, I think is CRM and the tools are still pretty bad where, you know, I can go through and if I'm on the road and this is, you know, again, a pet peeve, if I'm on mobile, you know, virtually no CRM works very well on mobile. So if I do a phone call, you know, I'd love to log that phone call. No easy way to do it except opening the app and typing in phone call and then logs. You know, if it's a Zoom call, maybe I'll get a recording afterwards or a summary afterwards, but I have to cut it and paste it into the CRM. You know, I have little hacks where I can, if I know, you know, the name of the company, for example, I'll, I have a an email redirector. So internally, I can send an email with notes about any given company and it'll get dumped into the CRM just as like a, a little hack that makes it easier for me. But, you know, there are still so many tools that when I think about like a touch point with a company, I check my email, I check the CRM. I double check there's no WhatsApp because there's no way to feed WhatsApp into this. You know, all our channels are very fragmented and generally siloed where, you know, if I look at my communication, it's so multimodal where yeah. it's a phone call, it's a WhatsApp, but my desk is an email you know, or it's an iMessage. I think, and CRM is kind of useless in, unless you're using it and inputting that data. So to me, you know, email is kind of the absolute most basic level that just so organizing that is. Ideal hard. tool for Rob probably is the agent which follows all this communication and then logs it. Well, there is no need to log. It basically logs it in itself. And then you just ask. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the, I mean, again, I've written some tools, even like, you know, when someone opens a doc send, that's not well integrated. Like that should be immediately pinged into the CRM. So I have a tool where I take the email, I forward it to my redirector. It parses out the details and adds, you know, the note to the CRM. So I have a, dozens of gmail rules for this for various uh various things you know adding an lp adding a deal adding an update um but these are kind of the things i hack together but you know that adds value and it's still early days where maybe some crms have a um an ift integration or some have a different zapier immigration integration but it's never complete and historically you know my partner used to use a blackberry up until last year i think you know, wow. we've had Android people, we've had iOS people, you know, I use a MacBook when I'm on the road, but I use a, a, a Windows and Ubuntu PC on my desk. So, 
you know, if you're that heterogeneous, it's hard to ever find a common ground because, you know, no one has, you know, a great Android app and a great iOS app and a Mac app and a Windows app. You know, it's always it's a user bad. experience entropy. <laughs> it's still out there. <laughs> like, so. I mean, and for, for a long time, that's why we used email because, you know, for a long time, BlackBerry was sort of abandoned. And so, you know, it was great when it was BBM days, but when it went to WhatsApp, then, you know, nobody was writing apps for BlackBerry. So every CRM, one hour analysis is like, well, no native app. You know, the browser is terrible in BlackBerry. How well yeah. I use it mobile. So what's your vision where, how LLMs are going to change? You probably have thought about that. I I, I would think so. Like how it's going to change the, the way how VCs you know, I mean, I, work. I mean, it seems inevitable. I mean, for a lot of the... You know, the questions, the analysis, I mean, I think in the short to medium term, it's a question of, you know, data freshness and how do you update the models with more real-time data? I think that's still, you know, a problem that you're using snapshots that are probably, you know, ChatGPT, the latest one is, I think, September 22, something like that, the one they just pushed a week or two ago. So data aren't very fresh. So it's great if you're doing, you know, historical research, but, you know, if you want to know what's happening in the last year, not so good. So I think for for VCs, time is such a, a question, but I think, there's going to be a, a distinct point where, you know, I say, great, I met company X today. Who are the competitors to company X in this space? How much have they raised? You know, give me a clear table where I can understand, you know, how does this company fit in this model? And if you think about our work product, you know, it's sort of an internal case and eventually maybe an investment memo. You know, those will all be sort of auto-generated, frankly, where if I have transcripts of my calls or I'm in a room and I open Otter on my phone and transcribe the meeting, in you know, 10 minutes, I get an investment memo back with some assessment of saying, okay, here's what we heard. Here's the questions you asked. And, you know, and then after that, you know, an agent-based approach where it may go back and say, you, know, you should ask this question. So I, I think there, there's a, a lot of the work that will have some kind of automation. You know, there'll still be you know, subjectivity in analyzing you know, the parts the, the systems can't quite compare. It can only get so good pattern matching for things that aren't an existing pattern. But I think a lot of the the simple work, you know, for better or worse, will be automated. Yeah. It's interesting at some point the the role switches. Like there's the machine assists you, but then it becomes that you assist machine. Like yeah. you are the one who is putting in the data and the quality of data depends on you. But then the 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 crunching and analyzing that's the machine. So yeah, I mean, you know, it's still really early days, right? Where if you go to ChatGPT, you know, you can pre-fill it with your custom prompt or your kind of background prompt. Or, you know, if you're using the API, you know, I have a standard, you know, thousand word prompt starter of how I want the response to be. You know, I want it to be in JSON format. Here are the keys I want. You know, here's how you infer, you know, if it's a country, for example, and it doesn't tell you the country, can you infer by a phone number because the country code's there? Or is it, you know, a .fr domain? So, you know, all these, you know, you give it the the prompts over time, you know, that will be reduced as it gets a lot better understanding what the starter prompt should be or, you know, the zero, the zero case scenario should be. And then I think, you know, especially that agenting model of when it has the ability to query back for certain things, if it knows, you know, there's a decision tree in my answer, mm. am I talking about a series A investment or a seed investment? It, you know, by being able to go, Reprompt you, I think that will become a lot more powerful. And that's still super mm-hmm. early in terms of, you know, the systems knowing where they can be augmented. I think there's still a, a explainability slash 
discovery factor where it doesn't necessarily know where it could be strengthened with extra data where it may be available. So I think it, you know it's still so raw, but it's happening at such a pace where you know, like I said, my friend who's never really been a a coder, you know, built the full Express JS app yeah. from a wireframe. Like that's pretty powerful, and you know, even you know, refactoring some code of mine, like pretty awesome. You know, I'll still find bugs here and there, and but like makes my life easier thinking about you know a few bugs here and there. Or ke- the linter catches whatever is weird, but aside from that, it's yeah, pretty darn good. I have been, when I refactor something, I just take the function and ask how I can do it better. And then it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm learning exactly. a lot. So, yeah. Exactly. You know, so, things like, you know, using sets in JavaScript instead of maps or instead of arrays, you know, where a different data structure is a better choice. You know, if you ask it specifically, it'll say, oh, you know, this is a better data structure if you want to prevent duplicates versus an array. So, you know, some things that I just, without being, you know, without reading the O'Reilly book, by heart, I wouldn't have thought of that because it's a newer construct. It's like, you know, a node, I don't know, node 12 or something construct. But I'm like, oh, that makes sense. I'll use that. And then, you know, you work it into your your code and you know, it probably makes me a better coder now because I'm thinking of different design patterns that mm, I probably yeah. you know, never learned. And, you know, maybe they're in the O'Reilly book and I saw them at some point or I'd never thought about applying them to this set of problems, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the basically augmented human. I, I, I came... Uh, I came across an uh, idea about extended mind that it's it's about like it's still you know what you want to accomplish so that the the trigger comes from you but then there's a machine who helps you accomplish that and the simple one is like you don't remember all the phone phones in your phone but you are the trigger to find them or vase or the map where you want to go that's your extended mind and we are yeah, now getting I, into that with this one on the different kind of scale yeah yeah that's why to me as far as humans go that's why crm is kind of the thread where even like the personal crm i mean it's a kind of a dehumanizing concept but like you know i have my phone records and my whatsapps and my emails you know i have you know two friends in california i haven't seen in a year they're good friends i just I've been too busy and haven't sent them a WhatsApp. Like there's a lot of things where, you know, it should say, look, this is a good friend. Have you thought about reaching out to them? You know, some of this stuff, you know, it's all there. If I go through and manually codify it and say, okay, Jeff is a good friend. I want to talk to him every three weeks, but you realize, you know, life, especially, you know, with kids and getting older, you know, life gets in the way and you realize, oh, it's been a year since I've talked to him. I really should. But to me that that's, you know, pretty low hanging fruit that there's no reason why someone couldn't come in today and a human could look at my email and try and guess, you know, Rob used to have a lot of threads with Jeff and now it's trailed down. Should they see each other again? Like, makes sense. Like there's a lot of ways I think you can do that with, with tools to actually enhance the human experience and become the extended mind. Cause I, I find at least for me, you know, I just lose track of stuff and I'll be yeah. like, Holy crap, it's been a year since I've talked to Jeff. I can't believe it. And you know, then we'll have a great chat or we'll go out for beers or whatever have you. But yeah, I think most people are bad at that. You know, a lot of people are, really bad at CRM. I mean, I have lots of friends where, you know, I'll send them a WhatsApp and if they're busy, it gets ignored. And then a month later, I'll send them a WhatsApp and they'll respond. And I, think I have a lot heard of- this story from VCs, why they don't follow up because it's artificial time in the future, like follow up this company and then either they have raised or they are the same. And so there is no reason. 
basically to follow up and yeah yeah i mean with follow-up with investments it's tough because you know if you if you miss the window of them investing or where you can invest there's no point if they're a series a deal and you're a series seed fund and then maybe they've there's always a marginal chance they're doing really well but need a little bit of a bridge and you can jump in there and take that to get access but you know vcs are never incentivized to say no right i mean every vc is and especially the americans you know when europeans meet the americans for the first time they come out of the meeting like that went awesome that vc loved me and they know 30 <laughs> minutes later yeah they're, there's very little incentive for them to be european style honest you know most of them yeah. are like great yeah, i love what you're doing you know not right now but let's talk in a month or two months sort of the, <laughs> yeah, the optionality of the game is generally you know and i'm as guilty as that i try and if it's something that clearly is not a fit, I'll try and just pass. Like, I just don't like the space. I don't want to talk, you know, I'm not into this, not a fit. Yeah. But if it's, you know, in the right space, but not quite found traction or, you know, yeah. optionality is is important to VCs, which so, is not good. Rob, you're like a hands-on guy. You're like a developer and slash partner and slash everything. <laughs> but what would be your advice for a, VC firm who starts to look into data and would like to develop a data strategy for a company. Yeah, I think about the basics first. Like for any new firm, like can you get the the basics in order? Like, you know, do you even have a CRM that's good that the partners use? Like I know there's a lot of firms that the partners don't touch the CRM, some of the junior folks do. But to me, like, you know, if I'm in a meeting and someone talks about a company, I want to pull it up really quickly and see every interaction my firm has had with that company. So I think there's sort of the getting your house in order bit that a lot of firms still are pretty sloppy with how they manage data and how they keep track of what they're doing. And then as far as you know, data tools, you know, unless you're you have the budget and availability to hire in people that can work on your tool set or ideally augment your existing tools, you know, some of this can live in the CRM where you can use that as your canonical single source of truth it doesn't necessarily have to be a database um but to do it right you know it's probably going to be an investment in you know two or three headcount minimum plus you know some overhead for servers and things like that so depends on you know what stage are you how much do you see the the value in it you know if your firm is very specialized it may be that you know if you're doing just you know drug discovery it may be that you know, every founder who's ever heard about drug discovery and or every founder in the space knows you and they come knocking on your door. This is why, you know, the Sequoias do well because, you know, every founder wants to talk to Sequoia. So even if they did nothing on data science, they would still see quite a lot of good deals. And arguably the founder is going to keep knocking on the door saying, hey, you know, I hit this milestone. But I think for every other firm, it's a matter of, you know, what are your needs for your stage? And, you know, do you have the basic tools and are you able to put them to work where it drives the the backbone of the firm and you know, we're still not quite there, but you know, I want to mm. ideally have, you know, a dashboard of every deal live, you know, a deal of all the pipeline by status and very hard to do because, you know, you're moving status along or things might be dragging or waiting for a co-investor, but you know, over time there probably will be an OS of some kind and the angel list gets kind of close to this, but sadly they don't offer much for Europe, but um, you know, some of these tools ought to be quite, integrated with Carta, integrated with, you know, Docsend. And there's a lot of things that the APIs are almost there or they're not quite baked out. But over time, you know, these things all thread together and give you a much more unified view. Mm-hmm. Yeah. AngelList used, used to be 
place, but yeah, they're very uh, US centric. It's awesome. Like in the US, I have friends that use it. It does everything for them. Like it, if you think about a European fund, like we probably spend two to three times as much on overhead versus our American peers because there's nuance around legal standardization tools, service providers. Yep. Whereas in the US, like there are so many service providers that are geared up. AngelList is awesome. Like I have a friend that does a a fund with a hundred LPs entirely on AngelList. And I'm very envious. It's a lot easier I guess, here. I guess the reason is the legal framework. One huge market and uh, the yeah, same yeah. regulation. Yeah. yeah, I think it's that. And frankly, the the markets is the, every market is small in Europe individually. And if you do France, yeah. it doesn't really get you into Germany. If you do UK, it doesn't get you anywhere. But UK, so. For any smart product manager, if I'm looking at a market of you know 370 million people versus a market of 80 or 110, like you're like, of course I'm going to the bigger market where there's probably also more capital. <laughs> and then by that point, you know if you're trying if you're spending all your money on growing that market, why would you waste money on going into a market that's much smaller? Yeah. Eventually, yeah. eventually that they do when when the the easy growth runs out, but it's like a year four problem. And eBay was notorious for this, right? eBay would just wait until someone won the local market and buy them at a good multiple. <laughs> so they couldn't be bothered to do it themselves. <laughs> yeah, I have spoken with some founders where they think, what if Google does that? And I usually say, well, the big corporations don't love to just do that wild cards. They just observe and then they acquire companies. So that's a different kind of game. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're lucky if Google does that. Like it would validate <laughs> the space because usually Google's going to screw it up and people are going to expect it to be canceled <laughs> in a year anyway. It's a validator. It's the same thing. You know, when you look at Sequoia in London, people say, oh, are you worried because Sequoia is in London? And no, it's validated the market. I think the fact they're here is made people realize, you know, London's worth being in. It's much. It's a much more strong signal if they have an office and they don't. So to me, like, competition's probably better. It's unlikely they're going to entirely kill you in nearly yeah. every case. It's a uh, it's a situation where it grows the pie or raises awareness. Yeah. So thank you, Rob. It was uh, super awesome Pleasure. to have you over. Pleasure. Yeah. No, any of, anyone that wants to ping me I'm on Twitter or X, Rob K. That's always a, my LDAP handle from Google is Rob K. So I'm Rob K most places. And people will be on your radar. <laughs> cool. Really good talking to you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Follow Starwatcher on LinkedIn, Twitter, subscribe to our Substack at starwatcher.substack.com. And of course, let us know who should we talk next. Till the next time.